Welcome to the new Fixing Healthcare podcast series, Breaking Healthcare's Rules. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur. I'm also the host of the Popular New Books in Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling books, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare, and Why We're Usually Wrong and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want more information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can go to his website, robertperlmd.com. Our guest today is Malcolm Gladwell. He's the best-selling author of The Tipping Point, Outliers, David and Goliath, and most recently, The Bomber Mafia, as well as the podcast host for Revisionist History. Malcolm, welcome to this new program for our Fixing Healthcare podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be on the show. The theme of this new podcast is that the American healthcare system is so broken that small tweaks won't be enough. Progress will require breaking the rules. By rules, I don't mean the written ones, the ones you can find textbooks or published by regulators. No, these are the unwritten rules, the norms, expected behaviors, and ways of thinking. And I can't imagine a better first guest than yourself for more than any other writer I've ever read or podcaster I've ever listened to. You adore the rule breakers in all walks of life, including the arts, the military, sports, and technology. So let me start by asking you, if we built a rule breaker hall of fame, who would be a few of your first nominees and why? Uh, such a great question. I wrote about one in one of my books. I've forgotten which one. Oh, in David and Goliath, I wrote about a, uh, a man named Emil Freireich, who was one of the pioneers of uh, may be the most important pioneer in combination chemotherapy. Um, and he's a classic example of a rule breaker because at the time he was trying to treat childhood leukemia, um, not only was the idea of combining different therapeutic agents in one regimen, I mean, to say it was outlandish is not even giving it. People thought that was so heretical and nuts. But he was trying it on children, and he was doing it. You know, he 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 realized the only way to cure leukemia was to take children to the brink of death repeatedly. You know, once a month for whatever it was, a year, a year and a half, using some of the most toxic drugs we know, putting them through an incredible amount of pain. Um, you know, taking them to the brink of death, bringing on side effects that were kind of unspeakable, that was the way to cure them of a deadly disease. And what he what he went through when he was demonstrating the value or trying to prove the value of combination chemotherapy for this, what he went through on a kind of social level was unbelievable. I mean, he was denounced, ostracized. It's it, In retrospect, it's miraculous he was even able to do the experiments at NCI that he was able to do. Maybe it's because it was the 1960s and there was a different attitude about um, risk-taking and rule-breaking. But um, he was, and my conclusion was he was able to do what he 
did in large part because of his personality. He was simply just someone who just didn't care if everyone else thought he was a monster. And you kind of need to be that way if you're a rule breaker, right? I mean, you can't can't be someone who's too concerned about what your peers think. Um, and that's it's really really hard to find people who are both have the imagination to break a rule and figure out a better way of doing things, and also the kind of um, strength of character to not care about the naysayers. It's easy to find one. It's easy to find one of those traits uh, and not the other. Uh, very difficult to find both those traits in combination. Given that, how can we differentiate a positive rule breaker from a sociopath or fool? I, I'm not sure. We always can, at least at the beginning, because all of those three states you've described can look very similar out of the gate. Now, so a lot of people looked at Amo Freireich and said he's a sociopath. He's torturing his children. He's violating every norm of medicine. He, what he's doing has no place at the NCI. They thought he was a Nazi doctor, right? That's what they thought he was. Turns out, actually, no. He did more to probably saved as many lives as, you know, he's on the, he's on the short list of people who saved thousands or tens of thousands of lives because of the things that he, but in the moment when he was starting out, it looked like he was a sociopath and maybe even a fool, you know? To say in the early 1960s and late 1950s, the smartest people in medicine thought you could not combine chemotherapy drugs. If you combine them, they would cancel each other out. And more than that, they would bring on, the side effect profile was so overwhelming that you would be doing more harm than good. So he looks like a fool when he says, actually, no, I think we can do that. Um, he looks rash, he looks intemperate, he looks like a Nazi doctor. So, you know, that's the thing we have to keep in mind, I think, is when we make those kinds of judgments of rule breakers, we may be right. There's gonna be some sociopaths mixed in there. I mean, there's gonna be the Elizabeth Holmes, well, she's actually an interesting and more and equally kind of complicated because that's the kind of territory that she's operating in, right? She's selling her idea to a group of people who are aware of the fact that sometimes great ideas look crazy in the beginning. So that's why they give her a pass, right? All of these, she goes to all these wise Silicon Valley people who have seen a version of this play out many times in the past and are aware of the fact that some percentage of truly brilliant, transformative, incredibly lucrative ideas look completely impossible and nuts out of the gate. And her idea looks impossible and nuts. And they think, well, I don't know, it's worth gambling on. Maybe it'll, if she works, if there's a 10% chance or a 5% chance or a 1% chance it works, but if it, if it does work, my $1 million investment's gonna be worth a billion dollars, right? So from their standpoint, I don't think that those who invested with Elizabeth Holmes are irrational. I think it's rational for someone with a lot of money in Silicon Valley to make bets on crazy ideas because 
there's a lot of other crazy ideas that did pay off, right? And the payoff, had she been right, that company would be worth, I mean, untold billions of dollars, right? Would, would I have given Elizabeth Holmes $10,000 in, you know, 2005, whenever I've forgotten when she starts her company, um, had she approached me? I don't know, probably. I, if I had 10,000 lying around, distract, sounds like a better, it's, it's a lottery bet, right? <laughs> now, as it turns out, she, she falls into the, either the sociopath or the fool category, not the, but we don't know. In the beginning, that's the thing. And if you get too upset, too intent on trying to separate, separate out the visionaries from the fools and the sociopaths at the beginning, then usually what you do is you just discourage anyone from breaking the rules. Malcolm, you, you've written about people who do care what others think. I mean, you've written about Captain Sully landing in the Hudson. You've written about uh, David uh, and his battle with Goliath. You've written about many of the Impressionist paintings and athletes. What else besides a certain thick skin gives them the courage to be rule breakers? Well, there's obviously, you know, these are people, tend to be people who, they do have a vision, right? Uh, they, are, they are powered by something that's really consequential and that motivates them. You know, Freireich, to return to him, is a, he is, he's dogged and he, there's a problem that he has sunk his teeth into, which is we have this untreatable disease that's 100% fatal. I refuse to accept that. As a doctor, I cannot, as a hematologist, I cannot in good conscience continue my career without taking a crack at trying to solve this problem, right? That's his, that's how he would phrase it, I think. That I, I went to medical school to learn about diseases of the blood. This is a disease of the blood. How can I continue unless I give it my best shot? And I think there's a version of that that every one of these these kind of rule breakers have, which is this kind of, they're powered by a vision of whether they can make their world better. You know, I, I've just been for my own podcast doing all these interviews about people who are trying to solve the relative age effect, which is the observation that in sports and in, in education, there are undue advantages given to people who are in the oldest part of their class, right? So the if you're cut off for soccer teams is January 1st, then kids born in January and February are overrepresented in the at, at elite levels, right? And that's stupid. Why would you leave someone who's born in December? Why would you leave that talent on the table just because they don't conform to your arbitrary cutoff for organizing your sport? It's been incredibly difficult to change the rules in that arena for all of the normal reasons. It the it complicates matters. You have to explain a complicated notion to people. You have to rearrange the way you've been doing things for a hundred years. So there's all this sort of logistical inertia that that is in place in institutions. But the people who want to change it, you know the. The two countries that have been most adamant about it, trying to change this in the world of 
soccer are the Netherlands and England. Why? They're two small countries that are crazy about soccer that have been repeatedly denied at the highest levels. They want to win the World Cup. <laughs> and they know they can't win. You can't win the World Cup if your population is 5 million unless you are insanely efficient in how you make, how you exploit talent, right? So the Dutch have a reason. The United States does not have a reason to do this in basketball. The Germans don't have a reason to do this in soccer. The Dutch do. And so I think rule breakers tend to be people who are in a position where they have a compelling reason to want to deviate from the norm. You've written a lot about the history of racism and the people who have broken those rules. Was it simply out of desperation? Do you think they did so? That's part of it. I mean, I, I'm in the middle of the project I'm working on now is about um, the former mayor of Los Angeles, Tom Bradley, the first black mayor of, L of, of L.A., one of the first black mayors of any major American city. And this is a man who did the impossible. He was a sharecropper's son from South L.A. who became the most powerful big city mayor in America for 20 years. And he repeatedly is the first to do something, the first black man to do X, fill in the blanks, he did it. And so he is a kind of classic. So the question is, what fires him? Part of it is anger, that he can see no reason why. So Tom Bradley is, in every setting he was ever in, until his dying day, he was always the smartest, the best looking, <laughs> uh, the biggest, the, you know, you name the superlative, he was, he's one of these people who had it all, right? He's, and he could never wrap his mind around the fact that he could be the smartest, the fastest, the biggest, the best looking, the most ambitious, the most charismatic in the room and not be allowed to succeed. It didn't make any sense to him when he was 14 and it didn't make any sense to him when he was 75. His inability to understand why the, the, the kind of insane unfairness of the position he was being put in over and over and over again motivated him to say, I just, I'm not going to play by the rules. You know, I, it's just, it doesn't make any sense to me. So he had, and I think many people are in that position, people who are struck by the kind of transcendent un inequality or unfairness of their position. And that gives you, that can be a very, very powerful motivator. Do you consider yourself to be a rule breaker? No. No, I'm, I am, I have, I have skated on a, on a, on a smooth pond of privilege my entire life. I, I have no, I'm a Canadian, I'm a, I'm a middle-class Canadian, you know, from at a time when to be the, a middle-class Canadian was to be the most advantaged person on the face of the earth. So, I, you know, I have never had any, I, you know, I like pursuing mildly controversial or um, counterintuitive ideas. That doesn't make you a rule breaker. I mean, I've been, I have been cosseted by some of the biggest institutions in journalism my whole career. I went from the Washington Post to the New Yorker. That's not the profile of a rule breaker. Let me disagree, Malcolm, because I think you have 
broken the rules about how you write nonfiction, not when you were the New Yorker, but when you wrote your subsequent books, because you were willing to take hypotheses for which 70, 80%, maybe 90% definitive facts and create narratives to help other people understand problems and understand their lives. The only author that I'm aware of in the nonfiction world has had parody books written about your books. Uh, I think you've totally broken the rules about how nonfiction is written and other people have followed in your footsteps, even if I'm only talking about the unwritten rules, not the legal and regulatory ones. Well, you're very nice to say that. Um, maybe I would say, I'll, I'll give you this, that I have I might appear to be a rule breaker because I'm very interested in rule breakers. That is to say, I'm I'm drawn to different topics than other people because I have a great um, affinity for the iconoclast. I am the I am the son of an icon of a of a great iconoclast, and so I have a great affection for people who like to do things their own way. And are indifferent to what the world thinks of them. That was my, that was Graham. That was Graham Gladwell. Uh, you know, one of the great, hilarious, indomitable iconoclasts that I've ever known. But uh, uh, so maybe I, maybe I'm one by proxy. How's that? That's great. Do you think the ten thousand hour rule that you've popularized and rule breaking align or clash with each other? That's interesting. The, well, the, the ten thousand hour rule is is really about. It's just about the. It's a an observation about the um, underappreciated power of effort, right? It's really a useful kind of metric for getting people to think about how much can be gained through sheer repetition, practice, willpower, grit. You know that kind of cluster of things, you can accomplish a great deal more than you realize, and so it helps you put talent in perspective. It says that your ability to succeed in a given world may have less to do with, you know, some kind of natural-born gift, and more to do with um, your willingness to apply yourself in a given domain. How far are you willing to run with your gifts? And I think what rule breakers, rule breaking is very much about that notion of your willingness to apply yourself and run with your gifts in new direction. I don't think you can find a rule breaker who understands any, follows any path to success other than outworking their, the status quo or everyone else, right? I don't think there's any other. What the rule breaker is, is someone who's willing to commit themselves to an unpopular idea at a level that exceeds that of their peers. That's that's my definition of a of a rule break. It's not holding an unpopular position. That's just a beginning. It's are you then willing to bet a huge chunk of your own time, energy, career, what have you, on that idea? And it's the it is the magnitude of the bet that makes you a rule breaker. What I sort of meant was, do you have to be so expert, which takes 10,000 hours, in order to understand the systems well enough to break the rules? Or 
after doing it for 10,000 hours, are you so committed to it that you're now afraid to break it and have to start all over again? I think both are true. I think that the downside of that kind of investment in a domain is it does, it does, you know, make you, and for some people, it does kind of capture them. It does make that, it's very hard to kind of, if you've done 10 years of specialty training in medicine in a particular uh, domain, you're powerfully invested in, you know, and you've made it to the top and you're now chief of X at Mass General. It's going to be hard for you to be a rule breaker because you're now at the top of the, the system was working beautifully for you, right? Um, so that, that at the same time, I would say that simultaneously, it's easy for you to be a rule breaker because you now have the expertise and the experience and the knowledge to understand what rules need to be broken. I mean, no one knows better than you what's what's wrong, right? You've you've lived it. So I think I think this is one of those cases where I think both are both are true. And maybe the 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 most successful innovators are those who under, who understand that that who who kind of work that contradiction. Is that why you think that doctors in general, not with the exception of the chemotherapist you described earlier, find it hard to break the rules? Well, it's funny. I have a cousin who's a a big deal doctor. I won't name his institution. You know it well. Very big deal. And when I talk to him, I don't find his willingness to break the rules, it strikes me as enormous. He desperately wants to do all kinds of things differently. But I think he's he, like many physicians, feels thwarted that, you know, the the problem is not that the I think that given given their the freedom many people in the medical profession, physicians, would quite happily innovate in all kinds of areas. But I think they're constrained by the institutions they're a part of, by the other parties involved in the, you know, just the way, think about the way, I mean, I, I can't believe I'm telling you this, but the way we have chosen to pay doctors for the work they do. Well, in many instances, that makes it really hard for those doctors to break rules, right? You're not going to get paid in the same way if you break a rule. Then why would you break the rule, right? You know, if we held your pay out of it, if we said we're going to pay you just as much or more, then you would you would say, all right, let's do it. But you, you got a mortgage, you got kids in college. You know, you know, you know, who's going to? It's this crazy system. You know, in in other professions, when people break rules and bring greater economic efficiency or value, we reward them. In medicine, it's really unclear that we have a consistent pattern of rewarding the person who wants to do things better. You know, I was having with my cousin, I had this, we were having a discussion about organic chemistry. My question was, what, remind me again why you have to take organic chemistry to go to medical school? It's just, it's really hard. It's really, weeds out a lot of people, but is it relevant to being a good doctor? You know, why do you guys persist in having that? And he was like, oh, I mean, yeah, it's nuts. I don't know why we do it, but I, he's not in a position to change it, right? I mean, does he want to spend all of his capital? You know, there's a limited number of things that he can, in his position, make better about medicine. Does he want to spend his his professional capital on 
trying to fix the weird obsession that medicine has with organic chemistry. I don't know. I mean, you know, it's just hard in a world where there's a whole separate fiefdom over there of medical school um, administrators and institutions who are determined to do things the way they've always done them. This series actually came out of interviews you did of me where you asked me the question about how would I change education? And as you know, the first one in the series was about how we train or how we accept medical students and then we train them. And I point out that in the 20th century, you had to carry a 50 pound backpack to have all the information in medicine. And organic chemistry is simply a way we assess your ability to memorize because if you can't memorize a tremendous amount of facts, you don't do well in that class. So it was the key skill that we were trying to assess for most of history. And now we're in the 21st century when we carry cell phones and you can look up uh, so many of the things that we used to test or acquire around memory. And we've not made this change and advanced it and broken the rules for how we select and train the next generation who will be practicing 20, 30, 40 years from now. But let me ask you, what's one unwritten rule you'd like the United States to break? Oh, wow. I would like, God, there, I mean, there's 50. It's, it strikes me that in many professions and in many areas, we pay um, uh, way too much attention to someone's age. So let me give you a small example of this. In your world, as you know, uh, there is a current and it's only going to get worse nursing crisis, right? Massive. I talked to a friend of mine who's an administrator at a big hospital system who said that 100%, 100% of their profit last year was eaten up by um, increased nursing costs. Every penny that they, that they make as a hospital system last year went to paying the same group of, of, of nurses more, right? That's how crazy it is. You, you must know this sort of much more than me. Now, so there's a thing where there's not enough nurses. We're clearly not using nurses in the most efficient way. They're all burning out. They're all quitting. They're all, I mean, you know, this is an emergency. So the question is, we have to sort of rethink, well, who are we treating nurses properly? Are we recruiting the right people into nursing? And are we managing the trajectory of nursing careers properly? A career where everyone quits at 50, there's something, a profession where everyone quits at 50 has a problem. Precisely at the point in someone's career where we want them around, if they're leaving because they can't take it anymore, that's a major crisis. So this model of, there's a case where this model of selecting people out in their early 20s into a profession throwing them into the mix and then riding them as long as we can until they just say enough and quit at 50 or 55. That doesn't work, right? So now I'm wondering, what if we just took age out of it? What if we made it really easy for people to enter nursing at 40? And we redesigned nursing so that someone at 40 could be comfortable with it. What would it take to have 65-year-old nurses? Well, you couldn't work them nearly as hard physically. But maybe having a 65-year-old nurse who might have social skills and life, life experiences that are incredibly useful for good patient care, maybe the, the act of redesigning the profession 
maybe the act of redesigning a profession so a 65-year-old could could efficiently and meaningfully participate would be really, really useful for medicine. Now, is that possible? I don't know. I'd love to try it, right? Um, I'd love for us to experiment with that. But we can only do that if we abandon our um, this idea we have that a, what a profession is is something you join at a young age and then carry over over the course of your life. Is there one rule you regret not breaking? Yeah, I should have gone to... Um, I should have gone to college in a country other than the country I grew up in, and I should have, not just country, in a culture other than the culture I grew up in. I think that was a, you know, we, we grab, you know, in other words, the unwritten rule there is that the point of going to college is to maximize the successes that you've had up until that, academic successes up until you've had up until that point, right? So you're, you are a good student in high school, so you go someplace where you could continue to be, to have the same kind of privileged position that you had in high school. In fact, I think it would have been more useful to do, take the opposite approach. I thrived in high school. I should have gone to college in a place where I would have had to struggle. That would have made way more sense in retrospect. I'd like to give you a few categories and ask you to tell me who pops into your mind as a great rule breaker? President of the United States. President, well, I mean, in a negative way, Trump is a rule breaker. He, he systematically violated every norm that has constrained the office of president for the last hundred years. Um, is there a positive rule breaker? Well, the great positive rule breaker would be FDR, right? Who you know, threatens to pack the court, who uh, is four terms, who, you know, is in the face of economic, first economic catastrophe and then a war, you know, realizes that as, that as president, he has to fundamentally rewrite the, the contract between the American people and their government. I mean, the New Deal is a, is a spectacular act of rule breaking. That's not what Americans thought their deal with the government was. And he said, oh, actually it is. Why? Because we've had a depression and, you know, there's too much suffering. So I think FDR is probably the best example. Athlete. You know, when I was, this is a dumb example, but uh, uh, do you remember the backstroker David Burkhoff? Yes. The Burkhoff blastoff. But he's the guy who figured out, figured out he figured out, so genius, that you could move faster under the water than above the water. So when he, in the backstroke, he, when he took off, he, he kind of wiggled like an eel underwater and surfaced, I don't know, 20 feet, 15 feet later than all of his, everyone he was competing against. And he'd be way ahead because he could move faster <laughs> underwater than, and now they've, Changed the rules, I think. You can't do it anymore. But he, I don't think he won. He, he was the, he had the world record for a while in the, I think in the 100 meter backstroke because he didn't, he, 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 he succeeded at backstroking by limiting the amount of backstroking he did. 
<laughs> which I just think he's, I've always thought he was fantastic. How about writer? Good rule-breaking writer. Well, I mean, there's the kind of classic, you know, James Joyce, you know, the, the kind of modernist rule-breaker, but I'm trying to think of, um, of, and then there are, you know, the experimental novelists, but I'm trying to think of, uh, of, um, you know, here's what I was writing a, a little thing, my Facebook bulletin thing, and I was writing about book. If you were going to go on a road trip to the South, what book should you read? And one of the first book books I recommend is a book that won the Pulitzer Prize by Diane McWhorter called Carry Me Home. And it is a kind of rule-breaking book because it is, she writes a book about Birmingham, the civil rights movement in Birmingham in the 1960s. And she is a privileged white Birmingham native. And it's really interesting. So first of all, it's rule-breaking in that it's history that's also memoir in a really in a very unusual way. It's, it doesn't fall into either category. But secondly, the idea that she is someone who is outside of the world of African-Americans in that period very much on the opposite side of the, of the, of the line is choosing to write a deeply engrossing history about a culture that is not hers, um, which is difficult, more and more difficult for people to do. Um, but the result is fascinating because you, you, you begin to see the, you're seeing Birmingham through the eyes in 63, whatever, through the eyes of someone, you know, a wealthy white person, right? And like, who is coming to terms with their own privileges, I tell you the story. Anyway, it's a marvelous. Um, I thought she's, I have always thought she was, that book is a fantastic example of, of constructive rule breaking in, in writing. How about artist, painter, sculptor? Yeah, there was a great example of rule breaking in the classical music world in the 70s when they went from doing open auditions to blind auditions um, and discovered you know, these were all orchestras in that era were almost exclusively male. And they honestly believed that women just weren't as good at doing classical music as men were. And when they went to blind auditions, they discovered that they were suddenly hiring all kinds of women. And what they, by breaking a rule about auditions, by making someone audition behind a screen, they uncovered their own prejudice. They realized, oh, in a way we had been blind to, uh, in a way we'd been unaware of, we had been discriminating against women. We had let the evidence of our eyes get in the way of our ears. And only when we removed our eyes from the equation could we actually listen to people and realize women were as good as men. Um, so the, the pioneers of that particular practice were brilliant rule breakers. Any last thoughts you want listeners to know about rule breaking? Well, my big question is, is it getting harder? And if it is, I sometimes worry that it's getting harder. And if it is getting harder, then we need to pay a lot more attention to what we can do to kind of restore the natural balance between this kind of transgressive risk-taking and the, you know, the, the importance of adhering to norms when, when, that is, when that's the right uh, course of action. And what's your prescription? I think, I think rule breaking is getting harder. And I, that kind of bums me out.
maybe you should write a book and tell the world how to make the change happen and get people to read it and make the changes that are needed. Robbie, I would leave I I would leave that for you. Well, thank you so much, Malcolm. It's always a pleasure to talk with you and I always learn much and I'm sure the listeners all will enjoy it. So thank you so much for being the first guest on Breaking the Rules podcast. My pleasure. Honored to, I'm honored to be the first, Robbie. Robbie, what do you think about what Malcolm said? Jeremy, Malcolm possesses a brilliant mind and the ability to take massive topics and boil them down to a few key ideas. He pointed out that rule breakers need to possess a vision for how to make the world better and a compelling reason to want to do so. Then they need a combination of thick skin, the willingness to embrace an unpopular position and the ability to invest themselves over time. I can't think of a better explanation of who rule breakers are and what they do. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and will tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please subscribe to Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. If you listen to the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare, Breaking the Rules with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.